This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, Samir Singh from TechTalks.net and I continue our conversation with the recent Apple Q1 2016 earnings and discuss Apple's Asia and rumored car strategy. We dive deeper into the narrative of artificial intelligence and self-driving cars from China to US. Welcome back. Hi, Samir. Hi, Bernard. We are going into the second part of our conversation because it is actually very hard for us to get together. I know you are busy in London. You have been moving around. That's why we wanted to get just this hour for ourselves to actually talk about some more happening things that have been in technology, not just across US, but also in Asia as well. There is a second part of the conversation and good to have you back. And I'm talking to Samir Singh, the owner of techthoughts.net and also currently with AppAny. Welcome back, Samir. Good to be here, Bernard. We're going to continue our conversation. Our last conversation talks about Facebook F8 chatbots and AI, artificial intelligence. There is a narrative that's actually ongoing because if our listeners are following in the next part of our conversation, it will also go, these topics that are before will actually link up to the next two parts of the topics. But I'm going to switch gears a bit. I'm going to talk about instead of Facebook, Google, Tencent on WeChat and Amazon, I'm going to talk about Apple and its recent iPhone blip. You're from India. You understand the Indian market much better than anyone else. I wanted to start off with the Apple's recent Q1 2016 earnings. What happened? Apple reported their first year-on-year decline in iPhone shipments, not sales, because they had a decline in iPhone sales last quarter. Technically, they hit their guidance, close to the lower end of their guidance. But what happened was in the previous quarter's earnings call, Tim Cook had mentioned that he didn't expect iPhone sales volume to decline by 15%. They went down by 16%. So the market basically took that to assume that Apple doesn't necessarily have a great handle on what's going on right now. To their iPhone sales, to them is a, is a big negative, at least just looking at it from a numbers perspective. But broadly, what Q1 was not a great quarter for Apple and the guidance for the next quarter was poor as well. So there's going to be another iPhone decline in, in the next quarters. I thought one of the interesting conversations with their earnings call is also the narrative on China and India. For China, because of the recent stock market crisis, the market is actually softening for them. There is this narrative about India as a market. But I think the first question I probably wanted to ask you a lot more is how did the Apple miss the forecast of iPhone earnings? Because I've been listening to a couple of analysts and they felt that Tim Cook has actually lost his credibility in past few announcements. He kind of misjudged this whole sudden upsurge in iPhone 6 sales. Yeah, I wouldn't say they missed the forecast because at least Apple's own guidance, they were within that. I think what they, Tim Cook's had a challenge with is managing expectations. So what happened was for the, for the last two years, I've been saying that smartphones are getting close to good enough. And what I think Apple had the one last big improvement they could make to their phone, meaningful improvement, which was making the screen sizes as big as the other phones on the market. And that created a huge surge of upgrades for a lot of people in their market. For some reason, not just Apple, both Apple and every Apple analyst, both Wall Street Apple analyst and a lot of other Apple analysts that you've had on the show as well, thought that that was a sustainable trend. Now, I don't know what would make them think that, but for some reason, they thought that was a sustainable trend. Then we saw this quarter come out and Tim Cook says that the upgrade cycle this year wasn't as strong as last year. Now, all the analysts are sort of parroting the same line that the, the cause for Apple's sales decline 
is that the upgrade cycles are lengthening. I think people are confused because the upgrade cycle is not a cause, it's an effect. There's a reason people are holding on to their phones longer. One, people think their existing phones are good enough and they don't see the need to, to put down another $600 for a new phone, whether that's $600 today or over the life or, or over two years, it's still $600. Especially for a phone where people don't see an improvement in their day-to-day experience. Now, when you move from a four-inch phone to a five-inch or five-and-a-half-inch phone, that was a meaningful change in your experience. But now, six to six S, that's not a change in your experience at all. There are two different scenarios here from what happens, right? One is that the iPhone 6 was a huge upgrade cycle, and that created really tough compares for Apple, something that the iPhone 6S and 6S Plus could never meet, irrespective of what Apple and their analysts thought. If it's only a comparison issue, then the iPhone 7 should put, put Apple back on the, on the growth track. But there's another possibility that this is a structural change to the industry, which means that smartphones as a product category have gotten good enough. And if that's happened, the iPhone 7 launch will not return Apple to growth. And that's a much tougher problem to solve. I actually think that when they did the upgrade from 5 to 6, there was a big switch from people who actually swap from Apple to Android phones because of the large screen. And basically that actually made the swap got over. Has that Android switching also been saturated now? It's possible. It's hard to say because we don't have any any hard numbers on it. But just looking at where the iPhone uh, in its life cycle and look, looking at what's happened to sales, I'd, I'd say it's a pretty safe bet that the quote-unquote high-end market has been saturated. I think the bigger risk now is when you look at Apple's numbers, the last two quarters, the, the volumes are down, but the ASP is still going up or flat on constant currency basis, which means the problems really happen at the bottom end of their portfolio. Which well, means isn't that what the iPhone SE was supposed to do? Because what the iPhone well, SE introduced is a $400 ASP. Basically, what Apple has done is basically putting the screen size and the ASP cost well, on that. Yes and no. Because if you look at uh, the entry price of, uh, for the iPhone, it was $450. So it's $50 lower. And it's in a region where volumes aren't necessarily massive. And you have another, another problem there where in India, especially in a market like India, what Apple was doing was they had the two-year-old model at $450, but they also retained the three-year-old model at an even lower price point. When they introduced the iPhone SE, they removed that three-year-old model and the price points have actually moved up. So right now in India, the price points have gone up by about 20%. So the iPhone SE launch in India was not very successful. And after that, Apple decided to increase prices even more if it was because of currency reasons or because they thought it didn't make sense to retain a discount if sales weren't, sales volume wasn't going to increase. But I don't think the iPhone SE is going to move the needle. I think the iPhone SE is more important for in the West. West there's some consumers that prefer a smaller device. You are talking about the f- iPhone 5S users who haven't upgraded to the 6. Basically, yeah. they jump straight to this SE configuration. According to the market, it's about 30 million of them. Well, let's look at it this way. What's the reason our 5S users haven't upgraded? If the only reason is because they don't like the big screen size, then yeah, probably they'll upgrade to the SE. But if they haven't upgraded because they think the S is the 5S is good enough for them, they won't upgrade to the SE either. There's going to be some people that upgrade, but I don't think it's going to have a meaningful impact on Apple sales going forward. It might have a bit of an impact in one quarter, but not four quarters down the line. So drawing on your earlier argument about structural change within the industry, I just want to take some of the data points from also the global smartphone shipping in the last two quarters. You also noticed that, I mean, it is now known that Xiaomi is off the top five list. And I think the largest is actually Huawei, Samsung, and maybe a few other vendors. So 
is, 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 yeah, is, is it actually because the entire smartphone market, because I, th- I guess it's also like the PCs, right? I mean, if you have a good enough PC, your cycle of changing the product is actually longer. Like for example, I mean, I'm so happy with my iPhone 6 plus today. I actually don't feel that I might want to change to an iPhone 7. I might want to wait for the 7S to come out. Is that actually generally true for a lot more other smartphones globally? Because in Asia, it's a mobile first world. The most interesting recent data is that in the last two years, Myanmar went from 0.2 million to about, estimated is about 30 million phones just went online. So, you, you, uh. you know, there, there are these new market growths that are actually happening in Asia. So I'm, I'm just trying to sort of piece together what this iPhone narrative also mean for the Asia market. Let's look at it this way. It's hard to look at the smartphone market in a, in a single monolithic way. Yes, the smartphone market is slowing. But it's not slowing at the bottom end. $50 smartphones, $100 smartphones are going to have huge sales volume. Are those smartphones good enough today? I don't think so. Is the iPhone good enough today? At the top of the market, probably. Is uh, Samsung flagship good enough today? Probably. The upgrade cycle at the bottom of the market is going to be very different from, from the top of the market. And which also means people that have low-end iPhones, potentially also get, if they think that the device category at that price, price point is good enough or at a lower price point is good enough for them, they might consider switching to a couple of years down the line. You might see switches in the other direction at the bottom tier, as opposed to people like you who have the iPhone 6 Plus probably retain their iPhone or, or elongate the upgrade cycle to get the next iPhone. Which is why you see Huawei is still growing very, very strongly. Oppo and Vivo right now are growing very, very strongly because these, these are the low-end disruptors today. Apple and Samsung are the incumbents and those two aren't in great positions. In, in some ways, Apple is in the same position that Samsung was a year and a half, two years ago. That's interesting because the S7 apparently got Samsung into profitability this quarter after mm-hmm. about many, many quarters of depressing growth because there is this also underlying theory that people talk about Samsung that people skip the Samsung Galaxy S6 and move into the S7 iteration. Well, I think part of that has to do with the fact that the S6 launched has to do with the iPhone 6 as well, right? The iPhone 6 cycle in general depressed the rest of the industry. Because there was a surge of switching volume towards the iPhone, right? Mm. And once that surge went away, Samsung is still on the same trajectory as they were, which is basically, they, they are declining. Samsung is declining. And if they're flat from last year, that just means that they've just made up for uh, some of that iPhone 6 loss. What does that mean for Apple in the next iPhone 7 iteration? If you look at from the Asia where all the supply chains are looking at some of the analysis. I referenced to Tim Coppon's uh, recent article about following Apple's suppliers. You are actually yeah. also seeing that there is going to be a, a decrease in the amount of iPhone shipping up in the next three to four quarters. So uh-huh. what does it mean then for Apple? Well, if the iPhone 7 doesn't return Apple to growth, that means there's a structural change in the industry, which means we saw what happened with the iPad, right? Granted, that was a different structural change, but it was a structural change to the industry. Uh, the iPad basically became a declining product within a declining market, which means the, the ta- overall tablet industry was declining because of tablets. But within the tablet industry, the iPad was, has been losing market share for a long, long time. So if there's a structural change in the industry, potentially that's what we could see. I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that the smartphone industry is going to decline. I, I think there is still some growth left for the smartphone industry, especially because at the bottom, but especially because of that, Apple could see even further declines in market share and decline in volumes, which means they need to find a new growth product. I don't buy the services narrative at all. Well, in that case, Xiaomi is actually a better services provider than Apple when it comes to services. I think in most of the Asian markets, a lot of the Apple services are not actually there. For example, Apple Music. Well, in addition to the Apple services not being there, the ones that exist as well are not necessarily up to Apple Maps, for example, works fairly well in the UK and in the US. But 
in India, for example, Apple Maps is not usable. I've used Apple Maps both in the UK and India, and it's very easy to easy to tell. The reason I don't buy Apple services narrative, even if you ignore the quality issues, Apple uses services as a hook for hardware. So I don't expect their services quality to be as high as a dedicated services player anyway. But the reason I don't buy that services angle is if you're a devices player, your goal is for your services to become hooks for your hardware, for people to come buy your hardware. And Apple has always been a quote-unquote niche hardware player. They have a small segment of a profitable market. But if you want to make money on services, you need to have the entire market. But I think they are not doomed. I mean, they still have about 200 over billion in their own war chest. Oh, Apple is not doomed. This is one thing that, that certain analysts always take. Anytime you say something negative about Apple, they read it as Apple being doomed. I think that's a complete straw man argument. It, it means that Apple as a company, the iPhone as a business is declining. What Apple has always done is every time one of their hardware products declines, they need to launch another hardware product that basically takes that growth. Unfortunately, the Apple Watch is not that. So it needs to be something else. You know, I feel the Apple Watch is a Trojan horse because I, I can tell you exactly where the Apple Watch is making money. It's not from the watch, that wearable unit. It's actually the watch bands. On average, everyone I know has actually owned more than two to three bands on average and they have spent a lot more on bands than on the watch itself. Well, it depends on how you look at it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a peripherals play, right? I mean, the watch oh, yeah, bands are actually very cheap to make. You see, whenever people tell me the Apple Watch is failing, it's like, can you please start asking those people who own the Apple Watch <laughs> how many bands they are buying and then you are telling me that they are not making money? I don't think so. But here's what I think, right? The Apple Watch, I've always said that there is no market for smartwatches. There was a market for a new Apple product, which is any product with an Apple logo on. So the Apple Watch came out. The Apple early adopters bought an Apple Watch. I want to see what happens to the Apple Watch next year. Because if sales start declining for the Apple Watch, it clearly means that, by the way, that's what KGI has predicted. And I think his name is Ming-Chi Kuo. He's supposed to be the best Apple analyst on the planet. And, and he lives in Taiwan. <laughs> Which is in Asia, happens to be. Yes, and he predicted 25% decline in Apple Watch uh, sales this year, even though this year's Apple Watch sales will be for a full year. And last year's Apple Watch sales were only about nine months. And if that happens, I think it clearly shows that it was just an early adopter wave, that there was no real demand for a smartwatch as a product category. And this is not specific to the Apple Watch. Android Wear is floundering. There's no demand for any Android Wear smartwatches out there. And I think everyone was hoping for that to be the next big app platform. It's not. If you listen to all the Apple, Wall Street, and non-Wall Street analysts out there, they, there's basically two narratives at the moment that everybody is talking about. One is, I'm going to go them in order. So the first one is the expansion to India, which is a market 10 years behind China because the Chinese market is softening. And of course, recently China has banned their movies and also books for the services side, which now they can't sell it on there. Yeah. Can India save them? Because... I don't think the average Indian customer is as rich as the Chinese customer. If you just basically compare on the GDP and compare even the top 5% of China versus the top 5% income for India. I think that's one of the three reasons why China is not going to be the next India for Apple. One is the average income. Second is culturally, India is not as brand conscious as China is. It's more value conscious. But the third one and the biggest one is in China, carriers still sell subsidized phones, correct? Yes. India carriers have no control over distribution. Apple's tried for the last two years for carriers to sell phones. It's been incredibly unsuccessful with it. And that's why it finally moved to a reseller model. And the only time, Apple still has like 2% market share in India. And now they're growing. They had about 1%, they've gone to 2%. So they're growing fairly strongly right now. But that growth only started after they gave their resellers the ability to price phones below MRP. 
that is the ability to discount phones. That growth is going to start being exhausted after a while, and I don't think Apple is going to grow as fast as the rest of the the Indian market because all the growth is going to happen in the sub sub two hundred dollar level, an area where Apple is not going to play, and an area where Apple is not going to be able to compete because it's cutthroat there. And then you plus have all the Chinese OEMs that are all entering into the Indian market and basically coming with cheap hundred to two hundred dollars Android phones, which are actually pretty good. I think Xiaomi yeah. is actually doing better than Apple in India, right? That's but I mean, they'll get toasted now I mean, by Huawei getting, and Oppo. So they're getting toasted. I think right now, almost any new smartphone player has a shelf life. If you are if you are a Xiaomi as a low end disruptor, you've got a one year, two year window before another disruptor comes in and starts taking you eating your lunch. And I think that's what's happening. Huawei, I think that's going to happen to Huawei at some point as well. The hardware business right now is just completely cutthroat. Okay, so I got the first part, which is the expansion of India. So that's not going to save them. So oh wait, there's one bit. So on the earnings call, there's a couple of Apple analysts and Tim Cook as well that have been pointing to the fact that LTE expansion is growing in India, and that's what's going to drive iPhone sales. Also, another argument that you don't buy if you if, if you're if you know the Indian market. If you can afford an iPhone in India, you have access to fast enough broadband. This is again the concept of good enough. You can afford good enough broadband very very easily in India if you if you can also afford an iPhone. LTE expansion is going to improve the experience for people who can already afford iPhones. It is not going to increase increase the appeal of iPhones. Neither Samsung nor Apple are going to benefit from LTE expansion in India. So the mobile carrier coverage is actually there's no impact to the smartphone sales. Which no that impact. makes perfect sense is, as well. Yeah. Because the people who can afford it, they can really actually use that. Actually it's only better for them if Apple goes into services in India then. Go into services? Oh yeah, sorry, they can't do that very well. I forgot about that. then there is the second narrative which i know is very speculative because but we've been hearing this called the project titan which is basically the apple car Mm -hmm. because it's going to go into our next narrative the next conversation topic which is basically self-driving cars so Mm -hmm. let's go to the apple car first is that going to save them well if you look at apple's history every time a product slowed down a new product has has carried on from it so from that perspective an Apple car at least makes sense based on Apple's history. I mean, as you, assuming it exists, I have no idea. Theoretically, yes, the Apple car, honestly, despite it being speculative, the Apple car is a much more realistic prospect for saving Apple than India or services. Here's where we want to go into the Apple car because what is rumored at the moment is that this rumored Apple car is self-driving, is electric, is most likely using the license, the BMW i3 chassis, which comes to the narrative of self-driving cars. I was actually recently appreciative of the concept of autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. This is something that I think maybe I will, I will start off the, the conversation first. So a lot of people think about electric vehicles being environmentally sustainable as well. If you actually look at the power consumption of the electric car, it's no different from you extracting directly from the power station, which is still not very efficient in any way. But what autonomous brings to the economy is that it actually reduces down traffic congestion, increase the macroeconomic activity as a whole, because you're able to optimize. And what is beautiful about the autonomous car is the best autonomous cars has to be electric. Mm-hmm. which means they have to become a computer by themselves, which is why navigation becomes important. The ability for machine learning, which we talk about artificial intelligence, becomes important in dealing with hazards, in dealing with the near state that's close to them. And that, there's this whole self-driving narrative. There uh-huh. are different ways of thinking about this, okay? So I'm going to start off by talking about Then Later, I can add on to tell you a little bit about what some of the Asian governments are thinking about in a self-driving cars path. There are different players. There is the Uber Lyft model where... We are the service, 
Mm-hmm. We basically make cars into OEMs and you don't need to own a car. You just press a button and the car will be there and autonomous vehicles will fit them perfectly. Lyft has done a yeah. deal with GM. There is uh-huh. the second group, which I call the services group, which is the Baidu and the Google, where they are using the mapping to basically build the business models into these autonomous vehicles. I mean, Google has been known for their self-driving car. And then there is the third group, which I think Apple, Tesla, plus the rest of the car OEMs all lumped together into, which is basically we sell the cars there, right? I mean, these are the, probably yeah. the three possible models going forward. So yeah. what is the path forward for self-driving cars? I mean, you wrote something about this thing about full autonomy versus incrementalism recently. So why don't yeah. I start off with that and then we follow up the conversation. But I think incrementalism, which is creating a semi-autonomous car and then slowly improving the tech until it becomes autonomous, that's a good approach to follow for a company that sells hardware. So in this case, Apple, Tesla, any other company that wants to sell self-driving cars. And the the argument is a consumer who's buying a $100,000, $200,000 car is not going necessarily going to trust something that's fully autonomous until he sees it in action and he personally experiences it. And I think that's a good argument, but only for these companies. When you look at a company like Google, Google is not going to sell cars. Google is not going to sell software that drives the car. The only way Google is going to make money is either A, increase proliferation of Google Maps or potentially create a ride-sharing service. In either of those situations, full autonomy is the only approach that makes sense because full autonomy is disruptive to car ownership. An owned car spends 95% of its time parked, right? Only 5% of its time is is actually driving. So what full autonomy does is, like you said, increase capacity utilization, which means dramatically reduce the number of cars on the road, which dramatically affects car sales, which is completely opposed to the hardware sales model of the other group. So the first two models that you mentioned, which is both ride-sharing and services, both geared towards full autonomy, which is disruptive to the car sales model of the incrementalist approach. In that case, which model benefits the OEMs then? Like for example, Tesla, Apple, together with your Toyotas, Nissan, Audis and BMWs. That means they want to get more cars because for them, their business model is that more people have car ownership, the better it gets, right? It conflicts with the uber lift model where i just want to put up this amount of cars because i can make it efficient i can make traffic to be less congested i mean i'm not even adding the logistics companies that might even put on self-driving cars on the road because it's actually make it also efficient for them in terms of last mile delivery like you said the the incremental model fits the hardware companies better increased traffic congestion is better for hardware companies one interesting part i probably can add on a little bit is on government regulation because recently I think there are a few cities in Asia thinking about having self-driving cars and one of the models that actually came out which I thought is a very smart way of making self-driving car become mainstream is basically create what is called a self-driving car zone. So, I mean, if if I were to imagine that living in London, you know, in the center of London, there's no point driving a car. I mean, they created the congestion charges basically to yep. stop cars from going in, right? So, what it really means is that when you drive into certain areas where the self-driving car zones, you turn your car from a manual drive into a self-driving mode. Okay, all right. That's definitely an uh, interesting approach. And it, in some ways, the regulations basically need to evolve to meet Correct. So let me explain to you why they wanted to do the self-driving car zone because that also gives them additional capex into government infrastructure with regards to traffic lights, with regards to roads because you need to put sensors on roads. In order to have the self-driving car works perfectly, the AI, the sensors, the intelligence on the road is actually very important. 
But doesn't that then favor the incrementalist approach more than the fully autonomous approach? Because if you need to, you still need to drive your car before you get to the self-driving zone. That means you're still technically on the car because it's not really much of a benefit for Uber to put out a self-driving car with a driver in it. That doesn't make any sense for them. Correct. Right? And also the other interesting part of the conversation that I think we, in terms of navigation, when you go into a self-driving car zone, is actually a fixed route. You're changing from the flexibility of human drivers changing mm-hmm. routes to an optimized route. There's a fixed. Okay, right. I mean, people in the logistics space, we, when we think about trying to implement self-driving cars, we are not thinking about, you know, let's drive in any roads. We just want to drive from point A to point B in the most efficient manner. And yeah. we can tell the governments, hey, just let's fix this into a self-driving car route because it's perfect for us. We have 24-7 deliveries. In, that's not a problem. But the problem actually comes in when you want to deal with human drivers, right? Human drivers are the biggest problems to self-driving cars because yeah. we are unpredictable. We are causing yeah. a lot of complexity to the system. Yeah. So having the self-driving cars don't also benefit the, the full autonomy model as well. In a tech perspective, yes. Uh, I think another interesting model is what Google is maybe attempting to do. I saw this report on the information a few weeks ago. So apparently what Google is going to be, going to be doing is launch a self-driving ride-sharing service specifically for college campuses, for at least a handful of college campuses. I'm assuming they need some regulatory support for that, for which Google has their own lobbying arm. But I think that's interesting because in general, traffic and human drivers aren't a huge problem on college campuses. It's still more pedestrian than anything. I mean, pedestrians are fairly unpredictable as well, but maybe a little less unpredictable than human drivers. That's interesting because it's a parallel to the Facebook approach. If you launch this in a few college campuses, other colleges start getting interested. Younger people in general are a little more experimental, willing to try it. And obviously, a car ride is going to cost $20. There's no element of trust there. That has the potential to generate more interest in the self-driving car model. Starting with other college campuses, then people start getting more aware of it. It's almost like it's drilling into the consumer mindset. But then the problem with it is that you, in order for it to go mainstream, then it also requires cities to go self-driving mode, right? If you take that analogy further. So wouldn't it be in Google's interest to say, get one of the cities in the US to allow self-driving car zone modes? Like San Francisco, I guess for example. San Francisco is the obvious choice. I guess so, yes. But I'm I think sure Singapore government will be open arms to Google and Baidu <laughs> to do that because they are really... Thinking about that, I mean, they recently did one of the innovation part. They're going to make it a self-driving car zone anyway. So maybe this is not an either-or scenario. Maybe it's something you do uh, you do in any way. So let's say you have self-driving car zones in San Francisco and Singapore where both the fully autonomous and the incrementalist approaches work, which is the fully autonomous cars operate only within self-driving car zone and the incrementalist approach, that, which is the cars that can switch into self-driving mode, they become self-driving cars the moment they enter that zone. People, again, are more accustomed to it. But on top of that, to generate more and more interest, you start doing the, the campus route as well. Maybe you start expanding and generating more interest in the tech. That's where that I'm going to add on the AI conversation we have in the last episode. So how does the AI get into this business model then? AI, there is no business model here, right? The way self-driving cars operate, at least the way Google self-driving cars operate, is that all of their self-driving cars are connected to a single unified cloud. So it's basically a hive mind of cars. When one car learns something from an experience it's had, based on, let's say, a, a child who's jumped out in front of the car or a human driver that's cut them off, all the cars learn it. Mm. So which means Google's mapping service improves, the intelligence of all of these cars improves, which means the more cars, the more driving experience your cars get, the better your entire platform gets. So while studying self-driving cars myself, I just found out that each car, in order to get to the right amount of computing power, is basically the amount of chips you need to squeeze eight Mac pros onto the wow. car so just imagine if you think about an actual self-driving car i'm not even talking about the software side 
just to fit the correct amount of chips for the right amount of the sensors to add on is about the size of eight Mac Pros. Wow. Mac Pros is the highest end of an Apple computer. That's the amount of circuitry you need to put onto that car. Which actually, by the way, for companies like TSMC out there and Intel Qualcomm or even ARM, this is a great business model, right? Because suddenly <laughs> yeah. the amount of cars increase means the amount of semiconductor chip requirements, which is what Ben Beharin has been also hinting a couple of times that for every 100 software engineers, we only have one chip <laughs> designer because you're going to run short of hardware chip designers for such a well, massive scale. It also tells you how much of an impact miniaturization could possibly have, right? Because if you look at the amount of chips, let's say an iPhone 6 has today, 10 years ago, that was a pretty high-end, maybe a gaming PC. And maybe 15 years ago, that could potentially be a mainframe even. The iPhone 6, I think, is actually faster than a Pentium computer in the 1995 to 1996 period. Based on that cost of the mainframe cost, even, I think if the iPhone was assembled in 1984, it cost you about $400,000, if I'm not wrong. Wow. I mean, think about what could a self-driving car look like? How much would a self-driving car cost in 5, 10 years down the line? Because if the hardware cost is that low, obviously the riding cost would come down as well. Here lies the, the interesting piece of it. But I, I look at a company like Tesla. Tesla has the OEM model, but they also bundle the services. Like they have things like the self-driving car mode. They have ways to summon the car, self-park. Can that be a hybrid model? Which I think also Apple might end up also doing the same thing. I think there is a hybrid model for Tesla, but a different one. What Tesla's been doing right now in the US is, yeah, they've been selling cars, but they've been building supercharger stations everywhere because people need to recharge their Tesla on the road. Yeah. Eventually, a fully autonomous ride-sharing becomes a thing. These self-driving cars need to fill up at some point. And Tesla effectively own the network that charges these cars. So they might transition from being an OEM to being a, a charging service. So basically, power is actually Tesla's competitive advantage. Access to power. That's, that's also interesting because in China now, we have the Lursi, which is actually owned by the largest content company called Le TV. And mm -hmm. they are building gadgets like phones and cars to basically increase the distribution of content. And I, and the guy behind, let's see, the car, which is actually also the billionaire investor behind Faraday in that, that, Silicon Valley. So it's basically getting the Faraday model and basically repackage it for Chinese market. So yeah, you could see the Chinese is actually going into the self-driving car market with a totally, they bypass the entire petrol cars because the government is dying for them to get rid of all this burning fuel in <laughs> Beijing's nuclear winter, for example. This is going to be really interesting. I'm very curious to see what self-driving cars, the ecosystem looks like five years down the line. Yeah. And before we close out this conversation, right? I mean, you saw Tesla's Model 3 successful crowdfunding. I have some of my Singaporean friends actually went to buy the, put their 1000 down for the thing. <laughs> and I think it's happened for South Korea, Hong Kong as well. What does it mean for the automotive industry then? It's hard to say. What Tesla is effectively doing is creating an iPhone-like excitement around their cars. On the other hand, you know, they are creating iPhone-like excitement. But if you look at the actual volumes as a percentage of the automotive industry, I mean, I'm not an automotive analyst. But it seems like a very, very small percentage. All upfront in the media, people are excited about it. The number of people who are excited about it are very, very small in the grand, th in the grand scheme of things. So I'm not entirely sure what to think about it. I, I think unlike Apple's earnings calls scrutinized by every analyst in the world, very few people are actually scrutinizing Tesla's earnings calls. Yeah, they the may lose money on every car, right? And also that they are recently, their head of production has just quit. Okay. And a couple of the people who are involved in the manufacturing are leaving the company. And I think Even that and the, the criticism about whether they can actually get the, this 500,000 cars into production is still a question mark. If you get Elon Musk putting his sleeping bag in the factory, that's probably, you know, mm -hmm. quite serious. 
Okay, even more reason for them to focus on charger stations. Can they even scale the production? That is the biggest question I have for Tesla. It's hard to say for me. Again, I don't know the automotive industry like I know the mobile industry, but 500,000 cars seems like a lot. No, it's a lot. <laughs> you know, I always had this thought that Elon Musk is going to be a great entrepreneur. In his To get to his greatness, he needs to beat Apple. So the Tesla versus Apple narrative is actually more like whether... Elon Musk will become someone like Steve Jobs, basically. You know what? I don't know about that. I've got, I think culturally, they're very, very different. I think Elon Musk is more experimental. So he's in that sense, he's closer to an Amazon and a Google. Mm. Apple is, I mean, they're somewhat experimental, but they're very, very secretive about it. They're very, very closed off about it. I don't know if Elon Musk had worked uh, in an environment like that. This narrative is interesting because it also means whether can Apple build a product that would not conquer the market eventually. I mean, that's what they did to the smartphones, they did to uh, the music industry, they did to everybody, even even in personal computers, right? The car is basically not just Elon Musk's test, but also Apple's test as well. Well, that's true. I think it goes back to full autonomy versus incrementalism, right? By the time Apple, I mean, Apple's car is, I'm assuming, not going to come out in five years. Five years down the line, maybe self-driving becomes a a little more mainstream. So if those ride-sharing services are out in the open, what does that do to car ownership? So does that mean that the automotive industry just becomes more high-end, which means the volume starts to shrink? If that's the case, the market that Apple's conquering, is is it going to be as big as it is today? Maybe that's not five years, maybe maybe it's 10 years, but it's still a relevant question to ask. Which is the question because the problem at the moment is that the ride-sharing model is a conflicting business model against the OEM model. Yeah. I find it very contradicting, but when I start to think about it, like, you know, the Uber model is fantastic as a service model, but actually it's very bad for car ownership. But it also can go in the reverse effect because recently, I don't know whether you know about this in Singapore, in order to have car ownership, you need to buy a license. And basically buying a car in Singapore is like buying a house and it's a depreciating asset as well. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Maybe that, that's, so, what that's what happens to self-driving cars so as well. So what was interesting that recently happens, everybody has forecast that the certificate of entitlement, which is the car ownership in Singapore, price to drop this year. You have to de- depreciate cars in 10 years. The license only lasts for 10 years. So the last big increase in licenses was in 2006. And so in 2016, all the licenses will be returned to the government and then they have to resupply the market again. So they expect the price drop. But what okay. they didn't predict was Uber going into the market and started <laughs> buying licenses. Wow. Okay. And then the price went up because the price was supposed to go down. So they have actually artificially created a increase in the market. Yeah, and if Uber's as, buying licenses, clearly that, that means they want to... I mean, Uber, the only scenario in which they would buy cars and one in which the drivers don't exist, right? Yes, and, and this is a very interesting play, right? Because in your full autonomy incrementalism model, in places where car ownership is, is almost conceived to be a prestigious status, mm-hmm. can it work? I mean, Uber is acquiring license. But, I mean, there's only so many licenses they can buy because the market will also want it. It depends on the market structure, right? There's a certain percentage of the market for which car ownership is prestigious. For a certain percentage, a car is more of a practical necessity. So if Uber can replace that necessity, you're done. And after that, it just depends on how the culture shifts on the the perception of owning a car. And I think that's a generational gap. Any last thoughts on self-driving cars? I mean, we, we talked about it for the almost an hour and a half. No further thoughts. I just think it's going to be a very interesting five, 10 years. But don't worry, we still have Apple's WWDC and Google's IO. I'm definitely sure I, I will have to try to work out a time with you to have this discussion yes. again. So... 
Samir, help my audience. How do they find you? You can find me on my blog at tech-thoughts.net or on Twitter at Samir underscore Singh17. You can find me at blongcw or at bernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud and Google Play. And of course, tweet to us and help us to give us a rating. And of course, Samir, once again, thank you very much for getting on the show. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation with you, actually. Glad to hear. So did I.